Turn with me this morning to the book of First Thessalonians. I will be in First Thessalonians chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 8. First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And as you turn there, you know, who, who do you really strive to please the most? Who do you strive to please? And the answer to that question is as varied as the, the people who answered, right? Because it, it, in one sense, it depends on your age. It depends on what season of life you're in. It depends on uh, various factors. If you're a child, you may be striving to please your parents. Or if you're a child, you may be striving to not please your parents and to try and please uh, yourself or maybe your friends. Um, for others, uh, it, it may be a friend. For some of us, it may be a spouse, right? Right, And that is uh, natural, that we want to please our spouse, our husband, or our wife. For those in the public eye, when we look at uh, politicians or celebrities, right, who are they striving to please? It's probably the public at large, right? And there's, there's probably some segment of the public that they are trying to win over to their cause. Um, and... The public, as they are, are a fickle lot, and so the whims of the public change uh, as as do the seasons. And so, when we think of this idea of who do we keep in the forefront of our mind that that we want to keep happy the most, um, we may have different answers, but there is one who we were created to please, God, and in one sense. He alone should consume our thoughts as to whether we please him or not. We should think about this question. Do do we please God? Do I please God? When I what I'm in and what I am engaged in, is that pleasing to God or not pleasing to God? And we do this not to earn his favor, because we can't earn his favor. We cannot earn his grace. But if we love him. We will seek to please him, right? The same thing as if we love our spouse, we'll want to please them. If we love our children, we'll want to please them. If we love our parents, we'll want to please them. The person whom we love, we want to seek to please. And so that is the motivation. And as we come to our passage this morning, I want us to see that love makes us bold. Love makes us honest. And love is what pleases God. And so we come to our text this morning, and we find the missionaries, Paul, uh, Silvanus, or Silas, uh, and Timothy, and they're, they're speaking about their coming to the Thessalonians, and their, their purpose in it, and their motivation behind it, and their aim was this, pleasing God. And so let's look at that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 8, and this is the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. 
but we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And this is the word of the Lord. And so remember that this letter here is written to a church that has and is undergoing persecution. This is a a letter that is written to a church in the midst of a hardship. And the question in the midst of any hardship, whether it's the persecution for believing in Jesus, or whether it's just the, the uh, the normal issues of life, the question is always this, is it worth it? Is it worth it to continue down this path, this course of action, in the face of this hardship? And as Paul here, he's been thankful for the church. You could look at uh, chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. He has been thankful that they heard, that they obeyed, that they have faith. And he now turns to the question of the missionary's characters, right? So his character, the character of Silas, why did these missionaries come to them? What was their manner? And as we go through the passage, right, we see they come with boldness, they come with honesty, and they come with love. But again, the question should be asked, why? And so let's look at the first one. Why boldness? Look at verses 1 and 2. Why boldness? For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. The Thessalonians know that the matter, the, the manner of the missionaries coming unto them and their receiving them was not something in vain or worthless. And how do we know this? Because in the first chapter we see that God was at work in their midst. God was at work in them. And so the missionaries' efforts had fruit. Look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Right? Something really happened in and among them. Something changed in the hearts of these believers in Thessalonica. And so in the midst of their persecution, they had something to hold on to. A vital faith, right? A true faith, a living faith, a powerful faith. And this really, that that was the first encouragement to the church in the midst of persecution. Paul says, listen, something happened in you. Remember that. And sometimes we need that remembrance, right? Sometimes we need to remember that something has happened in us. Often, if you go into the Old Testament and you read through the history of the people of Israel, you see that there are times when God says, I want you all to stop what you're doing, and I want you to build a marker. I want you to build an altar. I want you to set up some stones. I want you to set up some some, some identifications that when you are in the midst of difficulty, you have something to look to and you can remember. Or as you're walking by it and your child asks you, Dad, why, is, why are there 12 stones stacked up next to the Jordan River? Then that brings up the story. Well, there was a time when the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then God delivered us into the land. He gave us the promised land. We crossed the Jordan River as on dry land. 
even though it was beforehand overflowing its banks. Right? It's a remembrance. Right? They, and so Paul's saying, remember, remember these things, be encouraged by these things. But then he kind of turns and considers here in chapter 2, right? So in the first chapter, he's saying, remember the faith that you have and the, the fruit of that faith. And now he's saying, remember the way that we were among you and remember the, the fruit of that. He turns that, to them to, to have them consider who it is that spoke the message to them. Who are these messengers? Paul and his co-workers. What was their character? Well, first we see in in verse 2, right? Uh, But though we had suffered, already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. And so that brings us to the book of Acts. And uh, we find Paul and Silas's work in the Thessalonian church in Acts 17 in the first part of it. But in Acts 16, you find uh, there at Philippi. Uh, where the Philippian church is, right? Where we get the book of Philippians. And they're, they're there in Philippi, and the crowd turns against them, and they're actually beaten and thrown in jail. And then we have that, right, miraculous scene. Uh, it's miraculous for a couple reasons, but they're in jail in the middle of the night, and they're singing hymns. Uh, hymns and songs, which that's a miracle, right? You don't typically sing hymns when you're thrown in jail after you've been beaten and, you know, you're, you're wrongly thrown in jail. Uh, so they're singing hymns and then uh, an earthquake happens and the doors and opens up and all the chains fall off of all the prisoners. And that's the second miracle. The third miracle is that all the prisoners don't bum rush and run out of the prison cell, but rather they stay there. And you have this encounter with the jailer who, when he sees the doors opens up, presumes, what, do, what happens? Uh, and so let's, let's bring it local, right? If we were to go down to the Mason County Detention Center this morning, and we would find all the doors opened up, all the locks broken, all the doors opened up, all the chains, all the handcuffs, right, are open, what do you think the prisoners will do? They, they're not going to stick around, right? They're going to get out of there. They're going to run. They're going to race. And they only have to be quicker than the slowest person, right? And if they have to, you know, maybe knock a leg out or something, they, they, might, they might do that. Right? They, they, they would quickly get out of there. And so the jailer, seeing the door open, says, well, I'm going to just kill myself right here now. Because in those days, for a jailer to lose his charge, for soldiers to lose their charge of who they were supposed to be keeping prisoner, they would forfeit their life. So there's a high cost to being a jailer. And so as a jailer, you'd want to make sure things were secure, right? That that was a uh, a work of the state to make sure that the jailers do their job. Uh, And so he gets ready to kill himself, and Paul calls out to him, don't kill yourself, we're all in here. Come on in, you can see that. We're all just sitting in here waiting for you to come along, right? That's a miracle in itself. And and there's a the, the jailer, he believes, his whole family believes, that, and, and work continues, right? The gospel work continues. But, but so when he says here, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, right? They, that, I'm sure that was the first thing that they said. Here, let me tell you what happened in the last city we were at. Just so you know what probably is to come here in Thessalonica. He said... But we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much 
conflict. Because what is the natural assumption of what would happen after you're shamefully treated, after beaten and thrown in jail for preaching a message? What what is the natural assumption to do? Change the message, right? If you know that that, if that, uh, even a comedian does this, so in a different realm, right? Even a comedian does this. Part of what they do as they go from venue to venue is they improve their, their jokes. They improve their skill. So if they know that a certain joke doesn't hit the way they want it to, what do they do? They change the joke. They, they maybe change the pattern of how they tell the joke. They, they change some of the subject matter of the joke in order to get the effect that they want, which is laughs, right? They want laughs. And so comedians do that. Politicians do this, right? Stump, stump speeches when they go around from place to place uh, speaking and trying to get uh, people on board with their cause to vote for them. They change their message as they need to, right? If they know that a certain phrase isn't hitting the way they want to, they change the message. And even if you think on a national scale, the message that a politician gives in the state of Kentucky is probably going to be different than the message they give in the state of California, right? There's going to be differences because there's different cultures at work there. They change the message. So that's the natural assumption. Um, or, for instance, here's, here's maybe an unpopular one. Why is it that Disney now puts certain warnings and caveats before some of their older uh, TV shows and movies? Because the culture has changed significantly since those came out. And we may scoff and decry and say, oh, you know, let, let's, let's talk about wokeness or whatever you want to say. But in part, we have to realize that a godless corporation will do such things because they have to remain relevant in today's culture. Because if they're not relevant, what happens to them? They shut down. They lose money. They get angry shareholders. And angry shareholders do one thing. Replace the people necessary to make money. Right? So, so we should expect nothing less from a godless corporation. But what of us? More importantly, what of Paul? Right? What does Paul say here? We have been suffered. We have been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. And we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. See, this is not merely a question that Paul has to deal with. It's a a question that we have to deal with today. Because maybe it would be safer for us to change the message. Maybe it would be safer for us to change the message. But for Paul, there was no changing the message. Because it is the truth what he was preaching, what he was proclaiming. It was the truth that is the truth. Let me just say, this wasn't Paul's truth. Uh, This isn't our truth, right? Because we use that language in our culture today. This is my truth. No, it is the truth, right? The truth. They preached the message to them with boldness. And that boldness was because they were preaching the message of God, right? The gospel of God, even in the midst of much conflict, that was not going to stop them. 
This was not the boldness of their ability or their power. It was and is grounded in the nature of God. And again, the question for us today is, what message will we preach? Again, early in the book of Acts, we could look at an example of this. Peter and John are taken before the Jewish religious leaders. Uh, the same leaders, mind you, that killed Christ, that crucified Christ, right? And they are told in no uncertain terms, do not, do not preach the name of Jesus. Don't do it. Peter and John go back to the church and they begin to pray in Acts 4, 29-39 tells us that it sees part of that prayer and the result of it. And they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. See, the early church had boldness because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They didn't shy away from the truth of the message. They were not afraid of men because what could men do to them? No, they trusted in God and his word. And perhaps I ask that question again, what, what of us will we change the message? Because today we see that the church, our so-called churches, are so apt to change the message so apt to fear because, maybe because we don't pray prayers like these. Maybe it's because we don't say, God, would you give us boldness to declare the truth at whatever the cost? We don't ask God for boldness. We only see the trouble before us. Paul and his co-workers suffered greatly for the message of the gospel, but he continued his mission and with boldness because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And surely this is a sign of the character of the missionaries. Because they did not change the message, though they could have, and though the natural assumption is that they would have. Why suffer? Why suffer when it's easier to change the message? Why boldness? Because ultimately they are there to please God and not men. Let's look at the second part. Why honesty? And that's in verses 3 through 6. And so Paul says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. The message that they preached was an honest one. It's a true one. What they spoke, they spoke as they were taught by God. They were not motivational speakers moving from city to city trying to build an audience. And understand that that's something that we see today, but that was also something that happened back then. There were Hellenistic, that is Greek, um, philosophers who would make a living going place to place and speaking. And so uh, speaking their philosophy, speaking their uh, motivation, and they would gather a little crew around them, and that would be how they supported. That's how they made, made a living. And Paul's saying, we're not like that. right? They weren't spinning a yarn in order to get money and attention and power. And know what he says here, didn't spring from error. He said, our appeal, that is the message we preach, does not spring from error. And the reality is sometimes people are just wrong. right? Sometimes people are just wrong. They're passionate about it. They're passionate about what they're saying. They, they are fully convinced that what they are saying is true. But they're wrong. Right? It happens. 
Sometimes school teachers are just wrong. Right? Even though the, there's this air about them that, right, I am the almighty school teacher and I know all things, right? No. Sometimes they're just wrong. Sometimes the people we look up to are just wrong. And it's not out of maliciousness, right? They're not intentionally being wrong. It's just an honest mistake, right? And even that is, is a funny phrase, right? An honest mistake. What makes it an honest mistake? It's a mistake. It's an error. But it's honest. It's not, they're not trying to intentionally deceive, right? It's an honest mistake. We misspeak sometimes. We misremember how things go down. Um, we do the calculations wrong. Uh, that was something growing up when I was doing math work. I was sure that I got the right answer. I knew the logic was sure. Like, I, I, this is it. It was still wrong. But boy, did I have the logic right in my head, right? Obviously not, because I got the question wrong. So, right, it's an honest error. But when we talk about Jesus dying on the cross, when we talk about the sinfulness of man, when we talk about the blood of Christ, are these mistakes? Are these honest errors? No, this is the truth. What we have reported in the scripture, in the Bible, is the truth. Not a truth, not my truth, the truth. And again, let me say that that is a controversial statement in our day and age. So he says, it didn't spring from error. They didn't just accidentally say the wrong thing. And he also says it, wasn't, it didn't spring from impurity or any attempt to deceive. Right. So whereas an error might be non-malicious, when we're talking about impurity or attempt to deceive, that, that's maliciousness, right? There's an honest mistake, but then there's also an intentional mistake. There's an intentional misleading and we might ask the question, well, why would somebody intentionally mislead another person? That's to gain something, right? It may be to shame them so we appear better in other people's eyes, right? We, we tell them the wrong answer so then that way they go and spread that wrong answer. And then we can look at them and go, you're a fool. You got it wrong, right? So we can appear better before other people. And there are plenty of so-called preachers out in the world who speak a false message in order to gain power, prestige, and money. They go out of their way to deceive others, and here's the reality. They know they're deceiving others. They know it. Right? We see it when they uh, proclaim that they're healing people. You see, you see it when they proclaim that they're healing people because they're very careful not to have anybody who actually has serious and severe health problems onto the platform because they don't they know they cannot heal such a person because they know they can heal no person but so in order to deceive they go out of the way right it doesn't spring from an honest error it's not that they simply misunderstand the truth no they know the truth and they speak the lie anyways Jesus, speaking of his opponents, says this in John chapter 8, verses 44 to 45. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. He says to his, his opponents, you don't believe the truth. 
And it's not because they don't know it. They don't want to know it. Right? They don't want to believe it. They don't want to believe the truth. They don't want it proclaimed because they're like their father. And their father isn't God in heaven. Their father is the devil, the evil one. He speaks from his character of lying, and so too do those Jewish religious leaders who hate the message of Jesus, who hate Jesus. Their hate for Jesus, and thus their hate for the truth, is rooted in their perceived loss of prestige in the community. Why did they hate Jesus? Because they were jealous about what was going on in Jesus' ministry and not theirs. If Jesus is the Christ, then it would mean that they were wrong and had to confess their wrongness. And let's just be blunt, right? What man wants to confess that he's wrong? I'm certainly never wrong. Maybe I was wrong in there. I don't know. Uh, but, right, right they, they, they don't want to admit that they're wrong. So they deceive that their message springs from impurity in an attempt to deceive. More seriously, there is a cost to following to Jesus. There is a cost to believing the truth. The reality is that the world and its systems are designed to propagate falsehoods. And that's not a new thing. Right? We talk about fake news and social media and the prevalence of fake news on social media. But understand that that's not a new thing. The evil one has been throughout ages and ages propagating falsehoods, propagating lies, deceiving people. And don't think that he's going to remain quiet today when there are people who are trying to proclaim the truth. He will always be at work wherever the truth is being proclaimed. Because that's his modus operandi. That's, his, that's how he's works out his ML. Verse 4 continues, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Right? The missionaries preached the truth of the gospel. They were called to it. They were entrusted with it. You could look at Acts 13, for instance, and you see there, uh, before Paul's first missionary journey, where Paul and Barnabas are set aside by the church, they're called aside by the church, and sent to preach the gospel. Even in Paul's calling, right, even when he was first saved, God said, I'm going to send him to the Gentiles to preach the good news of Christ. He was entrusted with the gospel. And so, as they had gone to the Thessalonians, the question could be asked, right, why did they go? Because they were entrusted with the gospel. That, that was their mission. That, that was what they were called to. This was not a matter of trying to gain something from the Thessalonians. This was a matter of obedience to God. Galatians 1.10 says, and Paul there speaking to the Galatian church says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Right? Paul says, listen, I understand the cost that I have to pay to proclaim the gospel, and I willingly do it because I'm trying to please Christ. I'm trying to please God. I don't care what others say. And this does two things. When we think about this, it does two things for us. The first is 
The honest messenger of the gospel will preach the word without concern about the content of the message being a source of offense. Now, I'm going to say that again because I want you to listen closely to this. The honest messenger of the gospel will preach the word without concern about the content of the message being a source of offense. So I'm going to unpack that a little bit. What do we preach? We preach God's word. Uh, but even let's back up there for a moment and say, what does it mean to preach? Uh, because we probably have, like, that's a coded word in our, in our understanding, probably. Uh, to preach is simply to proclaim, to speak the gospel, right? To speak the good news, to, to speak about Jesus. And so we speak about uh, Jesus. We're all, if we're, if we're Christian, if, we're, if we are in Christ, we are all called to be preachers of the gospel. It's not just my job. It's your job. It's our job, right? We are called to proclaim the message about Jesus wherever we may be. Uh, that's the Great Commission. As you are going, uh, make disciples. You preach the word. So you, you speak what the scripture says, and you do that without concern about, um, about the message being a source of offense. So you preach with boldness. You speak with boldness. You speak without being afraid, because you shouldn't worry about the message being a source of offense. Now you should not make your method a source of offense. For instance, you're hanging out with a friend, and they look at you and they say, they ask the question, that you dreaded question, actually it's more dreaded depending on, uh, depending on who's asking the question, what kind of friend, uh, if it's a girlfriend, then you're in big trouble. Uh, but they ask, do you think I'm fat? They ask the question, do you think I'm fat? And they are. And you could say it in this way. Yes, you're a fatty McFatpat. Right? You could say that, and you would be speaking the truth. But the method that you've used to speak the truth is offensive. Right? That's an offensive way to say it. It may be true, but it's hurtful. A wiser course of action might be asking the question, why do you think that? Or why, why are you asking that? Why are you concerned about that? And you may unpack and find out, well, somebody else called them fat, and so now, now you're trying to deal with that. But, so a wiser course of action may be to find out why they're asking the question. What are they looking for? As a Christian, we shouldn't lie, so we shouldn't just say, you know, oh, no, honey, you're, you're great, you're wonderful, you're... you're um, nope, you're the skinniest person I've ever seen in my life. Uh, one, because it's lying, and lying is a sin. Uh, two, because if they have any sense of self-awareness, they probably know the truth of that, uh, or rather the untruth of it. And so uh, you're just, um, they know you're lying, and, and they don't trust you anymore, right? There, there's something that uh, is gone wrong there. But when you share the message of the gospel, right, that's a silly, silly example. But when you share the message of the gospel, right, that we are wicked sinners deserving of God's judgment and that Christ has borne the judgment for sinners on the cross, you should speak to please God. And so sometimes the method that we do that may change based on who we're talking to, the culture that we're in, right? If, if we're going to go into uh, Russia, the method we use is going to be different than what we're going to be using here in Maysville. Because if nothing else, the language that we're going to be using is going to be different. 
And we're probably speaking, for us, we're probably speaking through a translator, right? So how we share the message might change, but the message itself never does. We have to speak boldly the message of God. We have to speak honestly concerning the message. And guess what? The message of the gospel is offensive. Because what it says to us is that we are not good enough. We are not smart enough. We are not holy enough. We are not righteous enough. We, we are not who we need to be. And that is offensive. Especially in American culture where the goal is that we are always what we need to be. But ultimately the question of uh, this matter of our honesty in conveying the message is this. Who do we fear? Luke 12, 4-5 says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Our pleasing God is a matter of whether or not we understand who is really in charge. And when we fear men, when we change our message because we fear men, we are believing that they can do more to us than a holy God. What foolishness is that? But there's a second matter, which this issue uh, that Paul here raises that, that bears our consideration. And the second issue is this. We must weigh and test the motives of those who we would listen to. We must weigh and test the motives of those whom we would listen to. Mark seven fifteen through 20, Jesus speaking says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus there tells us to beware of those who are false. Because there are those who come with a, under false pretenses, with a false message, whose desire is impure and has an intent to deceive. And they are there for our very lives. And the scripture is replete with examples of warnings about such persons. And you must ask the question of the one who would teach or preach that which here Paul says, the character, the content of his character, we've been approved by God, entrusted with gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. The question you must ask of those who would teach or preach is, who are they trying to please? And listen, that applies for me too. Your job is to ask that question of me. You need to examine and see what it is my motive for preaching and teaching is. Do I speak the message of God's words to please you, to please others, or to please God? Now, I think I know the answer to that question. I at least, I'd like to think I know the motives of my heart to that end. Um, but God tests my heart. God knows my heart. And I often ask God to test my heart in this matter. And I feel as though I speak as I do because God compels me to do so. But as Jesus says, you're going to recognize false teachers by their fruits. You're, you can recognize false and true teachers. 
by their fruits. Those who are not Christians and those who are Christians, those who can profess to be Christians but are not, and those who profess to be Christians and are. So it's incumbent upon you to do that work. You need to discern those things. Verse 5, he continues on, right? So he says, we're, we're, we're here to please God, not men. He says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So he says here, uh, our manner of coming to you is not with words of flattery. And this idea is not, um, not so much the idea of what we typically think of flattery, which is you tell someone something that's maybe not entirely true, but kind of exaggerated to, to boost their ego or to, uh, to make them like you more or whatever, right? Whatever words we would use for flattery. Uh, this is actually, again, it goes back to this idea of tailoring messages. Because, again, in, in the days of the Greek philosophers, um, they could sometimes go and flatter others by changing their message to their audience to, in order to get whatever they want to get from it. Now, he says, I, I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to change the message of God in order to please you. I'm here to please God. So I didn't come with words of flattery. Uh, we could look at, for instance, at Paul's manner to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Right, so Paul says to the Corinthian church, I was weak. I, I, I didn't come in the wisdom of this world. And let's ask the question, could Paul have argued with wisdom and skill? Yes, read the book of Romans. Right? The book of Romans is this very complicated um, explanation of the gospel, right? argument for the gospel. So could Paul argue with wisdom and skill? Could he have used his words to such measure? Yeah. But to the Corinthian church, he says, I didn't come to you in that manner. I was, I was fear and much trembling. Right? Could you imagine a, a, a little old man coming up, and he probably wasn't that old, but you know, coming up and trembling and, and wavering voice, speaking such things, right? Is, is that someone we would think of as this bold preacher of the gospel? Yet that's the manner Paul says, right? I didn't come with flattering speech. My manner towards you has never been something about me. Because I'm not here to please me. And as Paul says there, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I came to you with simplicity because I wanted the foundation of your life, the foundation of your new life in Christ, in God's power. It goes on and it says in Versus, uh, at, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, right? He could have gone to them with the pretext, with this uh, preconceived desire to benefit from them. And again, the prosperity preachers of our day certainly fit this description. Those who we see on TVs could certainly fit this description. They travel and they visit and they speak so that they can take from their hearers. Paul didn't come to them in this manner. And actually, we find later on here in this very chapter that he didn't even uh, take anything from them. He wasn't a burden to them, he says. 
I didn't gain anything from, from you. God is witness. The Thessalonians could testify to this of what Paul says. But to the matter of the heart is God to witness to, right? They could see the external. The Thessalonians could see the external. What Paul was saying is true. But he also calls God as witness. God knows the heart of men. He knows the hearts of men better than we know our own hearts. Verse 6, he continues on and he says, Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Right? They didn't seek the glory or the praise. They didn't seek, right? They didn't waltz into town saying, Okay, everybody, Paul's here. Bow before Paul, right? So it's not even that level, but it wasn't even the, the lesser level, of, right? They're apostles. Like, Paul is an apostle, and there's a certain amount of honor and dignity that should be shown to an apostle. And he says, we didn't even come to you in that, right? We didn't seek glory. We didn't seek honor and priority. We could have said, don't you know I'm an apostle, and you should show me due respect. Paul didn't. He said he didn't see that. That wasn't his point or purpose. So why honesty? Right? Why boldness? Because they were there to please God, not men. Why honesty? Because they were there to please God and not men. And so the third and final question is, why love them? Verses 7 to 8. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul could have busted into Thess- Thessalonica like a marine, right? He could have said, I'm here. Like, let's get to it. Let's beat down some doors. Uh, let's, let's blast this place. Let's explode this place. He could have come in with brash statements. He could have come in making demands. He could have been this strong-minded and strong-worded man among them. And indeed, some people think manliness is this fighter-like manner. That you're not a man unless you're busting into the place and pushing everyone else out. And I say this especially to you young men. Nothing is more manly than gentleness. And that seems counterintuitive and certainly countercultural. And you may think it a strange statement, but there was no one more manly than Jesus. And listen to what he says of himself in Matthew eleven, twenty-nine through thirty. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So why is gentleness, why is lowliness manly or godly? Because gentleness is power restrained. Anybody can speak brashly. Anybody can speak brashly. I do it far too often. Uh, just to get to the point, right? Speak brash. But stronger is the one who can restrain his words. Anybody can be loud and knock people about. Right? That's easy to do. But stronger is the one who has self-control over his body. And again, consider Jesus. So let's consider the gentleness of Jesus and how that is power restrained. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God. He says, uh, as he is being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right when he's on the Mount of Olives, as his, one of his disciples takes out his sword and starts to strike 
and to you know fight back against the rabble that have come to arrest him. He says, Do you not realize that I could call a host of angels to my side right now? Funny enough, you see in the in I'm pretty sure it's in the uh, Gospel of John account. Uh, the people come to him and they ask, uh, he asks them, who are you seeking? And, you know, some discussion goes back and forth. And then they ask again, who are you seeking? And Jesus says, uh, I'm, the, I'm the one that's, I'm, I'm here. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're seeking. Uh, why are you seeking? And everybody stumbles back and, you, and the idea is that they fall kind of back on themselves. Jesus just says, look, it's me. And they all fall. Do you not think that with a, with a word, he could have turned them inside out? So all their organs were exposed on the inside. God, he is God. He could have done that. In instance, he could have said, die. And they would have all fell dead. He could have cast them into hell right there. But his was a power restraint. Now let me tell you too, that this is one of the greatest mercies and graces of God, because you do realize that in your sinfulness, God has every right in this very moment to cast you into hell, to end you right now. He could visit upon you such terrors that you have never even thought of. You may think the things of Halloween spooky, scary. Just wait until you stand before the lake of fire and are ready to be cast into it. You don't know what frightening is until you're before the presence of a holy God. Yet God, in his mercy, has yet given you this moment to repent. He has shown you long-suffering because he has not dealt with you as your sins deserve, but he has delayed the eternal suffering that you are due. More than that, he has provided to you the grace of his forgiveness which was purchased by the work of Christ on the cross. Again, think of gentleness, power restrained, Christ Jesus on the cross as worthless men mock him, deride him, beat him. And they say, if you're the Christ, come on down and we'll believe you. We'll worship you if you're the, if you would just come down from the cross. He could have ended them in that moment, and yet he stayed on that cross to purchase for us forgiveness. Gentle Jesus, who could with a word end you, yet stands ready to forgive you if you but look to him, if you seek him and turn to him. And Paul, for his manner, says, listen, we were gentle among you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. What does a mother do for her children? Give everything, expect nothing. Right? You don't nurse a infant with the expectation that the infant's going to get up and do something for you, right? You don't, you don't nurse an infant. You don't spend days and nights taking care of them thinking, well, gee, I, I, come on, little infant Johnny, when are you going to get up and make me breakfast? You know, you spend it expecting nothing. Paul was gentle among them. He sacrificed for them. He didn't see gain from them, but rather spent himself. And so he says in verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. 
And so why do I call 1 Thessalonians a letter of love? It is because of this. On its pages are words such as this verse, being affectionately desirous of you. Paul loved this church. He loved them, and he was ready to share not just the message of God with them, but his very self. He was ready to sacrifice for them. The Thessalonians had become dear to Paul, and the other missionaries, had be, they had become dear to them. They loved them. They want to share with them. They spent themselves for them. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. And what do you do for family? Much. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Paul does this. Why love? Because he is there to please God, and not men. 1 Thessalonians 1.6 says, When you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And so what were Paul and company like? And here we find in our passage that they were ones who were striving to please God. They weren't striving to please men. And indeed, the things that many in our world today, as even in Paul's own day, would find it this way, what they did was foolish. They suffered for the truth of the message. They spent themselves in love for the church. They didn't see glory and honor and praise, but rather they sought that God would be glorified. They sought the will of God, whatever the cost. And so what of you, Christian? What of you, brother and sister in Christ? What are you striving to do? Because whether you are in the home, whether you are at school, whether you are at work, whether you're out in the community, and you're just you're at Wendy's and you're getting a frosty, what are you trying to do? You have one goal, pleasing God. And the truth is that it is far easier to live this life pleasing others, pleasing men. Not that you ever really can, but you certainly won't suffer as much. You won't have much of fear from those around you. You may even gain a following in this world and get something out of it. But such is the path of death because you were created to please God. If you believe in Christ, then your life is a matter of worship. Romans 12:1 tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so I would encourage you this morning, here's one thing that you need to do. You need to pray that God would give you boldness to live honestly and to speak honestly. Pray that God would give us the boldness to speak the only true message of life to this dead world around us. Because the truth is this, we are all born in sin. Every single one of us, including you, are born in sin. You fail to live up to God's holy standard. And the only right thing for God to do to such persons is to punish them eternally. To bring them under his divine judgment. To bring us under his divine judgment. That is what is fair and right and just for God to do. That is what you are due and what is yours to come. Yet God, in his love, made possible a means for forgiveness. He made possible a way that he could still be just and he could be the justifier for all who believe. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, stepped out of heaven 
being born in the likeness of men, lived the perfect life that you could never live. He lived a perfect life, and though he was without sin, he bore the wrath of God for sin. He died on the cross, bloodied and broken, not because he had sinned, but because we had. And in his death, we can have life. And in his resurrection from the grave, we can have eternal life. This God of love has done this work for all who believe. And what remains for you is this. Confess your sins to God. Admit the truth about who you are, about the evilness of your sins. Admit that God is right in his judgment, for that's what it means to confess. And repent of them. Turn from them. Turn to Christ Jesus. Lay those sins down and put them to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Believe that what he says is true. And then begins your life. Then is birthed in you new life. And this life is eternal. This new life wrought of God in you shall never be snuffed out. Believe in Christ Jesus. Believe in the truth. And once you do, strive that in all that you think and say and do, please God and not men. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, indeed how, how far we fall short of that which you have commanded us to be, of, of that which you have called us to do. Father, we need your forgiveness. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts this morning to believe the truth of your word, to believe the truth of the message of Christ Jesus, that he indeed is your son, that he paid the penalty of our sins, and that in him we can have a right relationship with you. It is all of grace, all of grace, your gracious goodness towards us. And Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to take this message of Jesus into this world that is dead, into this world that is striving to please the evil one. God, give us boldness to speak it wherever we may be, whether in our place of work or whether at school, whether at the store. Father, wherever it may be, give us boldness to preach the truth of Jesus. God, let us know your love for us. Let us know the joy that we can have in Christ. And may that spill out over into this community around us. Father God, we pray these things and we pray that you are glorified, that you are worshipped in all, in all that we think and say and do. May we please you, our God, this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.